All right, good evening, everyone. We are back for what is supposed to be the last of the series. This was, a, I think, a four, five-week series that has turned into an eight, nine-week series. But I've really enjoyed it, so I hope you've enjoyed it as well. The uh, topic this evening is probably... Uh, well, let's just try to do a little bit of a summary of, of what you've been trying to achieve during the course of this course. And that was the idea that the that throughout this establishment and the development of the State of Israel, there have been a number of different events that have transpired um, that have really brought the the Jewish world and in the Jewish sense, the rabbinic religious world, into a point where there's this been this terrible tension um, and infighting and to a certain degree violence that has broken up about different issues. So we started off with uh, reparations from Germany. We talked about Ethiopian Jews, talked about the Eichmann trial, um, talked about um, a whole bunch of uh, other different uh, issues. And the topic we're going to deal tonight, which is perhaps one of the most fiery because it is one that has existed literally since the establishment of the state up until today, and that is the question of land for peace. And we're going to do it in two separate um, two separate elements of the land for peace. One is the, the whole concept of land for peace in and of itself. And secondly, and that sort of is a flow on from that, and that is the idea of refusing orders. Now, this has happened when soldiers in particular have been sent in to dismantle settlements or to remove settlers from different parts. It happened in, uh, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the early 80s with Yamit, which was uh, in the Sinai with Menachem Begin. It happened in withdrawal of Gaza. It's happened in a number of different um, settlements throughout Israel. And it's almost every few months it, f- it flares up again of this idea of you know, removing uh, um, Israeli settlers from their place and soldiers that refuse. Now, I see we have a very Mechubitika patient that has joined us this evening. And I just want to wish him a refuah shleima. Dov Ivian, it's wonderful to see you there. Um, I hope you have a very speedy recovery. Great to see you. All right, so so the topic, dare I say, is one that doesn't need any major introduction because we know that land for peace is a controversial issue. When we talked about the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, over there we talked about how Benjamin Netanyahu and certain other rabbinim were talking how Yitzhak Rabin was a moser, was a, was a traitor, was a rodef, was a, was a pursuer, was a dangerous individual. And we're going to see a lot of the similar type of characters talking about this whole idea of land for peace. Now, land for peace I mentioned has been literally since the establishment of the state. Because even though in, <clears throat> when we think of uh, Jewish history, we sort of we follow the narrative that we've been told. And that is in 1947, when the United Nations developed the partition plan that would create both an Israeli slash Jewish and Arab state, that the Israelis embraced the, the, uh, the partition plan and the, and the Arabs rejected it and invaded Israel. Now, that may be true. But the Jews didn't wholeheartedly accept it because many within the Jewish camp (coughs) opposed it because it was settling for too little. Because many, if if you look at the way the partition plan was developed, we were going to have to give up a significant amount of land that we owned. And and, and this is not talking about land that we, for a large part of the uh, troubles we hear today, in Israel, so for example, um, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, where these Palestinians have been evicted from their homes. So what's the story over there? So basically, 100 odd years ago, Jews 
in Turkish Ottoman times had purchased these lands, more than 100 years ago, they had purchased these lands and, and had the title deed. Then over the passage of time, the Jews were dispossessed from it and they were repossessed by Arabs, Palestinians. Now, many years ago, these title deeds have been found. And this is a story that throughout East Jerusalem, this is not a new story. And Jews go to the Supreme Court and say, listen, the, the, I have the title deed to this particular house that this Arab is living in. I want my home back. And in Chajara, the court said, you're right, this is your home. So the residents over the Palestinians living there, you can stay, but you have to pay rent. And what transpired recently was that since they hadn't been paid rent, they were being evicted. And that was the challenge. But their home was owned by Jews. So there were Jews, Jewish homes in East Jerusalem, through Judah and Samaria. There was an enormous amount of Jewish population. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of biblical Israel was in, in not part of the United Nations partition plan. So biblical Israel starts in the south from Beersheba, goes as far north as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and uh, the United Nations partition plan took away the whole of Judah and Samaria, the Judah and Shomron, um, and you know that that's the the bulk of Eretz Israel. So many rabbinim, Brother Herzog, who was the chief rabbi of the time, and many others did not want Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook. They did not want the, to accept the partition plan. So, but not because, but for almost identical reasons, the Arabs didn't want to accept the partition plan. They said, "You can't give up this land. This is our land." There's land that Hashem gave us and we cannot give it up. So as much as we think that, you know, land for peace is a very, you know, Oslo Accords type thing, but it really predates that. And we see this happen again with Menachem Begum, who's the first one who really gives up land for peace. We see when uh, after the Sinai campaign, Israel withdrew, but there was a withdrawal, not a, a not a, not a, a, a barring trade. That was withdrawing for whatever reason. But we're going to see that there were numerous times throughout Jewish history, of uh, Jewish history throughout the modern uh, Israeli history, that uh, this question of land for peace, you know, really uh, became an issue. So the way I want to present it tonight, we're going to use the most recent, um, uh, the, the most recent event that really this whole deal took place, and that was in two thousand and five with the withdrawal from Gaza. But what I'd like to share us with is first to just present us. <coughs> From a, uh, from a Torah point of view, from a pure Torah point of view, meaning going through the verses and the commentaries that far predate uh, the state of Israel. And then from there, going to what do modern, uh, you know, how do we paskin Lemaisa, or what, what, what has happened in the ground today? All right. So let me find our sheet. Oh, give me two seconds. I can't seem to find my sheet yet. Uh, Okay, so land for peace. All right, so first and foremost, when you talk about uh, rabbinic positions on a particular issue from a halachic point of view, invariably, most rabbis go to the Rambam, Maimonides. Now, Maimonides, no question, is the most authoritative figure that is always rabbinic or halachic figure that has ever existed in Jewish history. Now, one of the problems of the Rambam, and if you go through the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, which is his real uh, core, core work of, of, of Halacha, and you go look through it, there's one glaring abs um, absent mitzvah, and that is the mitzvah of living in the land of Israel. At no point does the Rambam ever talk about this idea that there's a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel. 
So how do you understand that? So many commentaries have spent hours and hours and hours. Did the Rambam not think that there was a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael? Or did he think there was a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael? So some want to say, no, of course the Rambam did. It was just so obvious. There's so many mitzvot. There were kutriyot ba'aretz. There are mitzvot that are dependent on the land. So all the laws that have to do with the Beit HaMikdash, all the laws that have to do with the agricultural laws, uh, so much of, 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 of the Torah, significant amount, is bound to Eretz Yisrael. So it's obviously a mitzvah. But others want to say, hold on a second, the Rambam does not count it as a mitzvah. So therefore, living in Eretz Yisrael, it might be a very nice thing, it might be a very praiseworthy thing, but it's not a mitzvah per se. One does not have to live in Eretz Yisrael. Now, Rambam himself did not live in Eretz Yisrael. He spent some time in Eretz Yisrael, but lived his formative years in Spain and his latter years in, uh, the majority of his years in Egypt. But he never lived for a significant period of time in Eretz Yisrael. So the first person who really goes against the Rambam. So for someone who wants to say the Rambam did believe in the mitzvah of living in the land of Israel. There was someone who clearly believed that the Rambam did not believe that. And that was the Ramban. So the Ramban, on his commentary on the Rambam. So the Rambam wrote a book called Sefer Mitzvot, which counts all 630 mitzvot. And in the Ramban's commentary, he says as follows. Accordingly. Conquering and living in Eretz Yisrael is a positive commandment that applies in all generations, in all generations, and obligates each individual even during the time of exile, as is evident by many tablaises in the Talmud. So, says the Ramban, Ad until this very day, it is a mitzvah to not only live in Eretz Yisrael, but to conquer Eretz Yisrael. The Sifrei, which is a Medrash, records that it happened Rabbi Yehuda ben Bataira, Rabbi Matzir, Rabbi Hanani, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Natsum, departing from Eretz Yisrael. They came to Patea and record Eretz Yisrael. Their eyes swelled with tears. They tore the garments and mentioned the following verse. And you shall conquer and settle it and be certain to do it. They proclaimed that settling and conquering the land of Israel is equivalent to all the mitzvot. And the Ramban holds this very. Now Ramban, as we mentioned a couple of days ago in one of the Shurim, that the Ramban was uh, was an ardent uh, lover of Eretz Yisrael. He did move to Eretz Yisrael, moved to Yerushalayim in a time when there wasn't even a minion in Yerushalayim. He had to import a minion from Tzfat. And there's a shul in the old city today after that named, named after the Ramban. But he says, Ada Yoma said there's a mitzvah not only to live in the land of Israel, but there's a mitzvah to conquer the land of Israel. Now, the Minchat Chinuch, now the Minchat Chinuch is a commentary, it's a later commentary, I think he's not mistaken, he's lived in the 17, 1800s. And he says it even stronger, that the Torah obligates us to conquer Eretz Yisrael with force. So this mitzvah, by its very nature, entails risking our lives. We cannot surrender portions of Eretz Yisrael, even if we are certain it will save lives, because this would violate our obligation to conquer. So you see like this, usually when there's a mitzvah that is pikuach nefesh, if, uh, if um, there's nothing to eat but treif and I'm, and, and I'm starving, what should I do? So it says, well, I'm pikuach nefesh to save your life. You can eat non-kosher. Um, every breaking Shabbat to save your life. Everyone agrees in. But what about conquering Eretz Yisrael? So this is by nature of the very mitzvah. And we spoke about this. <clears throat> I have to think about which year it was. We were talking about war. That the idea that war necessitates that there, there's going to be lo- loss of life. There will be. And, and conquering the Eretz Yisrael means you've got to put your life on the line. You've got to conquer Eretz Yisrael. So you have the Ramban and the Minchat Chinuch, who are two very authoritative uh, sources, come saying that this is, these are not mitzvot. So we say, build a Beit HaMikdash. No, build a Beit HaMikdash. Everyone seems to agree that when there's a Mashiach, we built the Beit HaMikdash. 
But what about Eretz Israel living it and conquering it? According to these two, even today, there's an obligation to live and conquer Eretz Israel. So, so if you go uh, live there, what, what defines living there? You know, how long does a person have to live there? So this becomes a question on if you visit Eretz Israel, do you have to keep one day yonta for two days yonta? It depends what's considered living. If I go to a place for a month, am I living there or am I just visiting? I'm there for a year. If I'm there for 10 years, if I'm going but I'm going to come back. So that's where a lot of these questions come. So how exactly fulfill the mitzvah is another question. But the, question. but the point they're making is that there's still this obligation against it. So we don't have the Rambam to help us out because he didn't say anything on the matter. So we can assume one way or another. But uh, these two are very firm. <coughs> what the Pe'at uh, now the Pe'at HaShulchan is a very interesting book, was written, so if you're familiar with your modern uh, history of Israel, so when we hear of Zionism, and the Zionism, I mean, there was 1897 was the first Zionistic Congress, and then all the Aliyahs that came after it. But, but bef- when they got to Eretz Israel, there were people living in Eretz Israel. And in Jerusalem, there was a very well-known uh, community of ultra-Orthodox Jews called the Yeshuvah Yashan, the, the old settlement. And these are Jews that had come, and they, Ada Yomazeh, they still exist in Jerusalem. And these are, were students of the Vilna Gaon. So Vilna Gaon lived in the 1700s in, uh, in Vilna, in, in uh, Lithuania. And he was also a great lover of Israel, and he sent all his Talmudim to go live in Eretz Israel. And they went and they live in uh, Meisharim areas. So, you know, they were the ones who really set it up. Um, to the best of my knowledge, they look very Hasidic, even though they're not Hasidic because they're students of the, the Volna Gaon. But one of those students was an individual who wrote a book called Pe'at Shulchan. And what the Pe'at Shulchan is, is a commentary um, on the laws of Eretz Israel. Because no one, you know, the vast majority of the Jewish world had not lived in Eretz Israel for. I don't know, at that time it would have been 1,700, 1,800 years. And so people didn't know. They didn't know the agricultural laws. I mean, how do you take tithes? How do you take truma? Um, and all these other things. How do you do shmita, sabbatical years? And one of the laws he has is Hilchot Eretz Yisrael. It says the Rambam ruling is that, sorry, that, that the, the, so the Rambam ruling is that it's only a mitzvah of settling the land, but not conquering the land applies today. So I think that's supposed to be the Ramban. I think I put a typo in there. That even, so he wants to understand the Ramban's idea. That even though the Ramban said earlier, there's a mitzvah to live and to conquer. The Pat Shulchan wants to explain the Ramban, that even the Ramban doesn't think there can possibly be a mitzvah to conquer the land today. And I think it makes a lot of sense. How are you going to conquer the land? You don't have an army. The Gerkrebs is going to go to Israel and conquer the land. How am I going to conquer the land? Conquer, you know, generally, Kibusha Aretz which is a uh, conquer as opposed to um, chazaka, which means to inherit and to take possession of the land. So we're talking over here in a case where the Pater Shulchan is saying there's no, you can't say that there's to conquer. There's no army. There's no something serious. But but there's, a, there's definitely a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. So we've got so far three opinions. One is that there's a mitzvah to live in conquer. The other is that it's definitely conquer. Even if you have to risk your life, you have to conquer Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is sacred. And number three is that uh, to live in Eretz Yisrael, yes. To conquer Eretz Yisrael, no. Now that conquering point is going to become a point of difference. The final verse is a verse from this week's Pasha. And it says as follows. It's the end of the Pasha. When you arrive at the land that I am giving you to inherit, you have to dispossess the uh, the nations that are there. 
החיטיה, גרגרשיה, אמוריה, קנניה, פריזיה, חיבי, היבוסי, שבע גויים רבים עצו ממך. All these seven mighty powerful nations more mighty and powerful than you. ונתנן השם אלוקיך לבניך וכיתם, and השם will grant you, deliver them you, and you will defeat them. ואחריהם תחירם אותם, you shall surely, it says here, you must doom them to destruction. לא תכרות להם ברית, do not have... Uh, uh, do not enter into covenants with them, meaning do not make peace with the inhabitants of the Lamb, and give them no quarter. So firstly, you may not create a covenant with them. We see throughout the Tanakh that certain tribes set up covenants with local inhabitants and they are routed as a result of it and punished severely because you should not. You should rely in Hashem. When you make a peace treaty, Tichrot Lem Brit means to make a peace treaty. Do not make peace with these nations. You make peace with these nations. You're saying that I don't trust in Hashem. I have to make peace with my neighbor because if I don't make peace with my neighbor, he will come and hurt me. But if I believe in Hashem, what I need peace with my neighbor? Hashem says, my land, I'll kick you out. So, funny enough, that's not the verse we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on the latter. Lord Tichanem, do not give them quarter. What does Rashi say? Thou should not grant them a chaniyah. Do not give them a settlement and encampment in the land of Israel. According to Rashi, there is a Torah prohibition of giving land to non-Jews in Eretz Israel. So, so we've got a multiple. One, I have to live there. Two, I have to get rid of whoever is living there. Three, I, have to, I cannot enter into peace agreements with anybody that is living there. And four, I definitely cannot give land to any of the people uh, that are not Jewish. So you read the Torah like that. And it seems like pretty black and white. You can't give up. What do you mean land for peace? It's our land. It belongs to us. We have to conquer it. You have to drive everybody out. Now, if you to just say it in that simplicity, I think, you know, you, it, 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 okay, it sounds pretty black and white. It's as simple. We have to go in. We have to not, not, um, not give land to the Palestinians, but we have to oust the Palestinians. Get rid of them. This is a Megahana almost. You know, you put them on transports and ship them to Jordan, to Syria, to Iran, Iraq, wherever it is, just get them out of here to Israel. This is our land. We have to dispossess. It is ethnic cleansing. That is what the Torah says. No question about it. The seven nations there, plus Amalek, which is not included, have to be absolutely routed. They get three choices. They can leave, they can fight, or they can live as second-class citizens. That is the biblical law. The question is, is, well, just because it's what the Torah says doesn't necessarily mean that what we do. Now, you've got to be very careful when you say something like that. Because you've got to say, just because the Torah says you can't eat meat and milk together, it doesn't mean you can. It doesn't mean we have to. So, there, so why, why do I say that? Because there are many laws within the Torah that are very specific on, on other attributes. For example, why don't we have a temple today? Because there's certain things you need in order to have a temple. You need a Sanhedrin. You need a, a high court. You need um, some uh, divine leadership, whether it be prophetic or kingship. You need a monarch. You need someone to do that. You need to have a certain divine authority before certain of these laws, which are very clearly guided towards a, a monarchical, you know, a kingly run ki- uh, kingdom in order for those laws to exist. So even though we conquered Eretz Israel in 1967, no one said, let's build a Beit HaMikdash. No one in the rabbinic world. There, were, there might be some extremists within the Jewish world that said, let's blow up, the, te- uh, blow up the, the mosque. So there were definitely extremists that said that. But no one said, let's build a third temple. Because we, we, we don't have the ability to do so. We don't have the ability to, uh, to anoint a king. We are really in this point where we, we, we don't have a king. 
So, so a lot of the laws in the Torah are, are not really relevant today. Uh, not relevant because they're not binding. Is that we're missing certain elements of our of our of our of, of our faith, being King, Messiah, prophets, in order to be able to sort of take the next step and build the temple and do this sort of thing. So, do these laws apply? So we said, um, according to uh, you know the Pater Shulchan, you know there's no mitzvah to or there's no mitzvah to conquer the land. It's like who, who's going to conquer the land? So you need an army to conquer land. You can't conquer the land as an individual. It says ah, but Midianat Israel, the state of Israel has an army. It says yeah, but does the state of army, the state of Israel's army, does it qualify in the same category? The, the state of Israel is a secular state. As much as those of us of religious see. Enormous amount of religious importance in Midianat Israel. There's a big difference between seeing a lot of importance in it and, and, and elevating to the status that it is of religious significance. Is Midianat Israel something of religious stature? Or is no, it's a completely secular state that does very wonderful things for the Jewish community. The same as like the Board of Deputies. The Board of Deputies is a secular organization that does very good work, political work for the Jewish community. But it's not like, it doesn't have a messianic status to it. And perhaps neither does the Medina. Now, Rav Cook, ironically, did feel that uh, Medina Tisrael would have a messianic status. And we will see some of these ideas come through. But you see that, albeit that the Torah seems to be black and white, it's really not so black and white. When it says, if someone is Machal or Shabbos, you should surely put them to death. But we don't put them to death. And if it says an eye for an eye, we don't poke out their eyes. Either because it's not what the halacha is, even though it seems to say that. Or we don't practice the halacha in this way, Bizman Hazem. Okay, so let's get back to our little screen. <coughs> Alright, so on the topic of can you give land for peace? So you're going to give two pretty much, two approaches. Yes, you can give up land for peace. No, you can't give up land for peace. So why, what are the arguments to say yes? So one is um, pretty much uh, peace is more important than land. That's, uh, that's as, as simple as it gets. The people who say no, say one of two things. Either land's more important than peace or giving up land won't bring peace. You know, it's, uh, it's as simple as that. Those are the... Uh, those are the two options you have. And I don't see any other way of looking at it. So again, you all say, yes, there's something, peace is more important than land. Or no, land is more important than peace. Or giving up land won't give peace. So we're going to see a number of different rabbinic opinions. And it's by no way exhausted because there is, to the best of my knowledge, not a rabbi anywhere in Eretz Israel or the diaspora who hasn't weighed in on this particular topic. So I'm going to try... Um, you know, get through a lot of those opinions in the best way as possible. And some of these names you will know, some of them you won't know, but they are definitely not an exhausted list. They're just they are some of the, let's say, the highlighted positions. And we, again, we are going to be focusing now in 2005 on Israel's withdrawal from Gaza. So first, Rav Avram Shapira. Rav Avram Shapira, chief rabbi of Israel, 1983 to 93. So again, this is not someone... These are not talking anti-Zionists. We, again, the rabbis we bring in are not going to be anti-Zionists. They're going to be very much within the Zionistic camp. So Avram Shapiro was the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Merkaz Arav. My brother-in-law, Yedidia, it was his rov. Uh, and he was the chief rabbi and a very prominent uh, modern, uh, not a modern Orthodox at all, but uh, a religious Zionist rabbi. So he wrote in an article, or he was published in an interview <coughs> in in. Uh, so the Hitna Kut, the withdrawal from Gaza, if I'm not mistaken, was in October 2005. But this is his statements, and we're going to go just through some. He wrote about nine points 
of which only one is against giving land, the rest is going to be against refusing orders. So it says, according to Torah law, it's completely forbidden to give to give in Israel to give land in Israel to a non-Jew due to the prohibition of Lord Techanem. Do not give them a foothold. So that was the last source we saw. You can't give them an inch. And due to the nullification of the commandment to settle the land of Israel, there's a comment upon every individual of Israel. This prohibition applies to every Jew, soldier, and civilian alike. In order to take part in the evacuation of Jews from their homes, in order to give land over to non-Jews, is an order that is against the religion of our Holy Torah and forbidden to fulfill. So, it says, firstly, you can't give up the land. It's at least two prohibitions of not... Of not um, of not uh, living in the land, not settling the land, and you're giving it to the non-Jews. And if you fulfill it, you're going against the Torah law. You can never obey a, a, a law from, um, obey an order that's against the Torah. It's to- totally prohibited to do that. Now, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that shortly, but you open up a, a, a bit of a Pandora's box when you say that when the law, when your orders are against your morals, you don't have to fulfill the orders. We're going to get into that. Every order that is contrary to Jewish law and compels one to violate the words of Torah holds no validity and is forbidden to fulfill and no person has the authority to deliver it. About such instances, the Rambam wrote, he goes without saying in order to, uh, in, that if an order of the king nullifies a commandment, then it's not listened to. Then anyone who violates this prohibition will not be exonerated, not in this world, and not in the world to come. So soldiers, if you get orders to go evacuate people from Gaza, disobey those orders. In general, the prohibition of handing over land to non-Jews includes helping those engaged in the transgression. Therefore, one must not participate in blocking entrances to Gush Katif or assist in another matter. The expulsion of Jews from their homes similarly is upon every soldier called for reserve duty refrain from showing up with services designed to enable soldiers to take part in transgression. So if I'm, I'm going up to the north so that the people in the north can go to Gaza, you're not allowed to do it. So Rabbi Avram Shapiro says, absolutely not. You may not be engaged with it now rather there's a, another article which uh, let's see i could possibly find i think i've got here so this is an article a rabbinic exchange on the gaza disengagement it was a, a series of letters written between rav avram shapira who we just read and rav luchnesin who was my rosh yeshiva talking about you know just not following how you go and one of the questions Rav Lichtenstein asks, which is the, the Pandora's, box, Pandora's box that I mentioned, is that you have a lot of soldiers in Israel who refuse to serve in the West Bank because they are left-wing and they believe it is against their, their value system. And we see it regularly that there are soldiers who refuse to serve because serving in a particular place or it, it goes against their values. Now you see, this is not unique to Israel. We saw people you know, refusing to go serve in Vietnam and etc., and etc., cetera, et cetera. So if you're going to say that any that since uh, I believe that uh, pulling out of Gaza is against the against Torah law, therefore as a soldier you have to disobey the law. So you've opened up this real Pandora's box that anyone can say, listen, I don't believe that you know doing this order is against my value system. So you believe in Torah and I believe in I don't know Ronald Hubbard. So we don't have to follow laws. It's it's a huge Pandora's box. But that was Rav Avram Shapira, and he was very, very strong on that particular position. Um, he had a lot of people with him, and we'll see, uh, see some of those positions later. Now, if that's on the one extreme, on the other extreme is Rav Yehuda Amital. So in my, in my yeshiva, uh, the Gush, you had two rabbis, Rav Amital and Rav Lichtenstein. And what made the Gush unique 
is that the, the Gush was a uh, very Zionist yeshiva, one of the flagship Zionist yeshivas that predominantly was quite left-wing politically. And left-wing not meaning that they were Shalom Achshav, merits left-wing, but left-wing in a sense is that they were much more accommodating to uh, some of the secular ideas in, in politics. So he says, this is Rav Yudah Metal in, in a couple of articles. To the extent that religious Zionist Jewry is conscious of its historical destiny at this difficult time, it must change direction and change tactics. It must declare that we seek peace and we mean a true and final peace, not a formal peace with politi- et- political etiquette, which has recently been regarded as the be and end all, but rather a peace that will remove the fear and horrors of all. For the sake of such a peace, we will be ready to make concessions, including territorial Compromise. So Rav Amital and Rav Amital became part of Rabin's government in in, a, in his political party. Is that we are prepared to give a peace is more important than land. And he continues, the halachic arguments offered by certain rabbis are generally based around the reading of a political map in accordance with right-wing political views in the matter surrounded by public controversy, such as issues of dangers and possibility of the peace peace process. So he says, you know. Yeah, they do, every they, they are, the 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 right wing are pessimistic on everything. There is no optimism whatsoever. We cannot give land because if we give land, uh, they're just going to use it to attack. It's going to and, and they're going to do worse and worse. In fact, everything is seen through this prism of we can't do it. These arguments are based on selective interpretation and preference for opinions of certain early commentaries and contemporary authorities, such as preference to the approach of the Ramban, which we saw concerning commanding to conquer the land whose relevance to our times is subject to debate amongst other authorities, which we mentioned, over the approach of the Rambam, who we mentioned, and other Rishonim, other early commentaries, and a preference for rulings by rabbis from a certain circle of the rulings from other circles, meaning you, they become selective. Right-wing rabbis only listen to right-wing opinions that uh, conform with the idea that we're not allowed to give up land. For some reasons, these preferences always correlate to the political views of those rabbis. We are not speaking here of abstract ideological positions, but rather of practical halachic rulings and essential, uh, existential question of life and death ramifications. So he says, these people, they're not looking at it objectively. What does the Torah say? They say, I believe X, let me go find the rabbis that support me. So I believe that this is our land, it belongs to us, we shouldn't give an inch. So who are the rabbis that support? The Ramban supports me. And now it becomes what you call... Um, Confirmation bias. I will see all the commentaries that agree with me and ignore those that don't. And perhaps strongest in this last article of Rav, uh, Rav Amitav says, one cannot simply dismiss any opinion as different to anyone who does not think like everybody else. I, for example, am considered a great heretic because I do not believe that it is forbidden to relinquish so much of the sentiment of Eretz Yisrael even when human life is at stake. Rav Amitav was he felt that the entire Eretz Yisrael project was only of value if it if it saved Jewish lives. If you were going to lose lives for Eretz Israel, it's not worth doing. And Midianite Israel has value because if if you think about it, as when I, I I love when when you know I have people anti anti Israel people come to me and they say you know was it really worth it? Look how many look how dangerous life is for Jews in Israel. Look at they've got Palestinian terrorists, they've got Hamas, they've got Hezbollah, they've got you know hate all over the world. Think how many Jews have died in all the different wars of Israel. Was it really worth it? And without blinking an eye, blinking an eye, um, he says yeah, absolutely it was worth it because he says you know more people died. In one week of Auschwitz, then since the establishment of the state, this is like 
the reason the Midianat Israel saves Jewish lives. No question saves Jewish lives. But if holding on to this particular part would, 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 would cost a life, it's not worth it. So if we can get peace, we need to pursue peace because peace is far more important. Now, this is largely based on, a, on this messianic vision of Eretz Yisrael. Is, is Midianat Yisrael part of this messianic vision? And are we, uh, you, know, st- you know, taking our steps towards Mashiach? And therefore, we can't give up land because this is a God-given land. We can't do it. Or do we look at Eretz Yisrael, Medinat Yisrael, you look at the state, as a pragmatic solution to a very real problem. Hashem is giving us a very pragmatic solution. We've got a secular state in Eretz Yisrael that's going to look out for the best interest of the Jewish people as a whole. It's not a religious state. It's not of religious significance. It's just a secular state that allows us to live a religious lifestyle. So those who are very opposed to giving up land are seeing it in much more messianic terms. And, and, and you'll see that you know, largely in the rough cook mold of, of seeing the state in a very messianic way, whereas the others are much more pragmatic, much more rough salvatic mold, which is that the state of Israel is something that is of a great bracha to us, but it does not have religious significance. Okay, so you've got Rav Amital. And Rav Amital, in particular, after the Yom Kippur War, where a number of, uh, of students from our yeshiva died in the war, uh, really broke Rav Amital. And his idea of pursuing peace was like, it's just not worth it. So if you were to ask Rav Amital, if we, if we could guarantee peace, and this is an interesting question, if we gave up Jerusalem, we gave the Temple Mount, we gave the Western Wall, we gave it to the Arabs, and for argument's sake, say, that would bring us peace, is it worth it? And, and again, it's not speculation, it won't bring peace. Just say for arguments, Rav Shapiro would say, absolutely not, it's not worth it. We'd rather die a thousand deaths and give up one inch of Eretz And Rav Amital says, give it away. Absolutely give it away, because human life, Am Yisrael, are much more important than Eretz Yisrael. So now we're going to have a few other opinions, some within Eretz Yisrael and some without. So Rav Herschel Shachter is the Rosh Hashiva and Yeshiva University. And he, he felt as follows. He says, you know, at the end of the day, the question, he says, is like a, a sick individual. So what's our lack of a sick people? You've got doctors saying you should operate. You've got other doctors saying you shouldn't operate. So what should you do? So here in Eretz Yisrael, you've got uh, politicians and, uh, and military strategists saying you should uh, pull out of Gaza. And you've got others saying you should not pull out of Gaza. So what should we do? He says, likewise, in the case of a nation in mortal danger, faces a solution of dubious value, decision in the course of action should be taken in the hands of the majority of those affected. Meaning, we go by a referendum. You know, those are people going to affect it. That's what the law is. There's no, this is, the people there are going to make the decision. There's no clear consensus, which, which almost wants to suggest that this is not a religious question at all. This is a completely secular question. Now, I remember Rav Lichtenstein was interviewed at the, at the time. And I asked Rav Lichtenstein, you know, what do you think that the Jew, should Israel pull out of Gaza or not? And his answer was, I don't know. You know, what do I know? He says, I, I know what I read in the newspapers. Um, that the, uh, the, the chiefs of defense have a lot more information than I know. And if they believe that this is in the best interest of Israel's security, so who am I to argue? So, you know, there's this idea that there's certain rabbis who feel that they know and that they should, you know, should rule on particular things. And the other rabbis will say, listen, they, they, I don't have all the information at my hands. And if I knew what they knew, you know, if anyone thinks they can make an adequate political decision, this is one of the great, uh, you know, comedies that is uh, democracy. Is I have the same vote as the Prime Minister, but I don't know anything that's going on. I mean, I know what he, I know what the newspaper tells me. I know what the politicians uh, tell me in the media, but I don't actually know the truth. And same thing over here. So I'm going to make a decision. We should or shouldn't pull out of Gaza. He's going to bring peace. It's not going to bring peace. 
Uh, how am I supposed to know something like that? So I'm not supposed to, I don't know. And therefore, you know, just what do people say? Go by the majority. Okay, Rabbi Yosef, who is definitely not dovish at all in his opinions, but with regards to land for peace, surprisingly is. He says, if the heads of the commanders of the army together government state that saving of life is involved, that if areas of Israel are not given back, the danger exists of immediate war on part of our Arab neighbors, and if the areas are returned to him, the danger of war be averted, and that there is a chance of permanent peace, then that seems that according to all, to all opinions, it permits to return areas of Eretz Israel in order to achieve this aim, since nothing is more important than saving a life. Which is the same as what Rabbi Amitav said. He said, if it can bring peace, if they say it's going to bring peace, so who, who am I to argue against them? So the point being is over here is that whereas Rav Avram Shapiro felt that the land is worth dying for, others saying the land is not worth dying for. Now it becomes a question, will this bring peace or not? So if you've got two groups of, of generals in the army, one saying it will bring peace, and one saying no, it will, it will cause more death. So there's a going to be a, a, hu- a huge argument between them. But, so be it. Okay. The opinion of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, if anyone, Lubavitcher are very right-wing in their politics. Um, obviously, the Rebbe is not talking on Gaza and he's not even talking on Oslo because he passed away before those. He's talking about uh, the Camp David Accords, which was Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat regarding, um, regarding the Sana. And he felt that uh, giving up land for peace was a terrible mistake. And he said, and he gave, these are, you know, the reasons he gave. There's the website. If you want, I can send you all the details. It says the one, once you start giving up the land, it's never going to end. And this was something that we saw about redeeming captives that we read that we did a few weeks ago. He said, you know, if you, if you redeem captives for too much money, it's going to incentivize people to kidnap Jews. So if you give up land, then you know, every time we give up land, the Palestinians say, well, they give up land, they'll give up more land. Number two, it says Jews would be attacked. Return of land would compromise Israel's security and emboldens enemies to strike. Number three, terrorism would increase. Number four, Israel would be demonized rather than receiving a windfall of positive publicity and international goodwill for making peace. Surrender land would use a PR baseball bat to bludgeon Israel with delegitimization international boycotts. It's hard to say that it hasn't happened. I'm not sure that it has happened as a result of giving up land for peace. But one thing has happened is that we have definitely won no friends by giving up land. Um, pulling out of Gaza, if you, you want a good example of this, pulling out of Gaza, you would think that we were we had settlements in Gaza, we had a very very heavy army um, presence in Gaza, and pulling out of Gaza, therefore, should have been a great PR thing. We are no longer in Gaza. But if you anything, there's the siege on Gaza, and we're we terrible, and we, we are making Gazans' lives a nightmare. So pulling out of Gaza did not do us any favors from a peace point of view. Okay, a few more uh, articles here with regards to um, <coughs> with regards to uh, where's my thing with regards to land for, uh, orders. So just uh, here are a couple of articles. Military rabbis refuse orders that go against the Torah. So this is from another rabbi, Rav, Rav Nachum Rabinovich. So this is Rabbi Rabinovich over here. So Rav Rabinovich um, is a was he passed away last year. Um, was the Rosh Hashiva in another huge Hezde uh, Zionist Yeshiva called Maladumim. He, in fact, was Canadian-born and raised and came to Israel, was one of the real you know, pioneers of the Zionist Yeshiva movement. But he, too, f- felt that you had to disobey orders. Now, he, he said from a different point of view, it wasn't same, not for the same philosophical reason as Rav, Rav Havram Shapira, but nevertheless, he did feel that, uh, that one should disobey orders rather than, you know, go... The last thing is a uh, opinion I bring here is that um, this is Ravelez of Oldenburg, the Tzitzliezer, 
he was the um, he was one of the rav. He was a big rav of Beit Din in Yerushalayim. Was actually the rav of Sharet Tzedek Hospital. And he said, even in our times, the president, government, and Knesset, despite all their problems regarding spiritual matters, and that is clear with regard to Torah, any decision made counter Torah invalid, were chosen by the majority of the Jews who reside in the land, are regarded as regarded as the Melech, is regarding national matters. Meaning, if if we can ascertain that that the, the, the orders they're giving you are not halachically prohibited, even though politically they're against you, then you have to listen to the secular government. The prime minister is considered the king, and you have to listen. You cannot disobey orders. This becomes a huge issue at every single time that these, these, uh, these, these lands for, land for peace or um, uh, dismantling a settlement comes up. It's always going to be these questions of Jews that go and... Uh, Refuse to refuse orders, and how's it going to be? I remember, so I I'm, I came to Sinai in two thousand and five, and it was just before it was when all the the heat was coming of withdrawal from Gaza. Can we withdraw? Will we withdraw? Rabbis were saying it was never going to happen. There were people davening. There were chains done, you know, human chains done across across the land of Israel. But ultimately, it was done. Did it bring any more peace? It's one of those things we don't know. One thing is for certain is that, uh, albeit that there are rockets coming to Israel, which there weren't beforehand, but there were, there were always casualties. I remember Gaza was not a fun place, and the settlements in Gaza, albeit people lived there, there were soldiers, regular stories of soldiers that were losing their lives in in protecting those settlements. So, was it the right decision? Or not I don't know, but those are the different opinions, and it's it's still till this very day, divides the religious community of Israel, and it's become. At least I think for this series, the final battle for the soul of Israel. Um, might have one more next week if I can think of another battle to come up with. But uh, to that end, I wish you all Laila Tov. Thank you so much for joining. I'll let you unmute yourselves. If anyone has any questions, please. Uh, please. Questions, comments, reactions? Yes, Mina. Hi. Um, just, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not saying which way, I think one way or the other, but how would, say, somebody like Rabbi Avital or others who think like him, how would they touch him, you know, knowing today that they want from the river to the sea? Well, listen, that's not new. You know, from the river to the sea is not something that just came uh, came in the last week. I mean, it's been since 1947, if not before that. So, so that's not unique. Um, the question is what the person on the street says and what the people in the, you know, what the people actually, uh, what's happening. You know, Anwar Sadat was not a man who wanted to, like everybody said peace with Egypt was, was, was never going to last. That they're going to make the peace with Egypt, they're going to pull out of Gaza and it's going to be a matter of months and then e- Egypt will invade again, and it's going to be. And this is a peace that has lasted for close to forty years. So, um, so it's you know it's it's hard to, to hard to say that. Then is there a chance for peace? Uh, clearly, you know we've got peace with Jordan. We've got peace with uh, and and the peace with Jordan has lasted for the last what uh, thirty years. So you've got peace with Egypt. You've got peace with Jordan. We've now got peace with uh, the United Arab Emirates. We've got working relationship with Saudi Arabia. These are that. These are people that we you know countries that we thought we could never have peace with. So it's hard to argue. And each of these places we give up. So we gave up the whole Sinai for Egypt. And as much as everyone was opposed to it. I would. Uh, you have to say that forty years later, it looks like it was a good. It was a. It was a good decision. 
You know, we have not. That was our most dangerous border. Correct, but there was as much opposition to it. Once it's been conquered, and I'm not sure, you know, Gaza is not biblical Israel either. So, so, so like, I mean, and the opposition to Gaza, it's, once Eretz Israel, the Jews in, are very similar to, um, you know, Muslims have an idea that once we've conquered, once they've conquered a land, it is always Muslim land. So we don't have quite that idea, but we do have the idea is that if it's under Jewish authority, it ha- takes the status of Medina, it takes the status of Eretz Israel. And so, for example, what's Eilat today? So do you keep one day Yontif and Eilat or two? So it's not part of biblical Eretz Israel. But uh, what do you do? Do you take Truman, Misa in Eilat? And so on and so forth. So in many of these areas, we say, yeah, it's like it's, it's under Jewish control. It's considered uh, part of Eretz Israel. So the, these things, you know... The question is, the question has to come, and I think this this is a bigger question: is will this de- will this make peace? And, okay, so but that's a debate. So okay, I I agree, you know that that is it appears, but you know that's hindsight. That the the essence is what are our options, and we we need to try make peace. So if we know it's not going to make peace, so you, why, you'd be crazy to give up land for peace. Because it's not giving up land for peace, it's giving up land for nothing. But if you feel that there is an opportunity and there's a chance to make peace, then you do it. Rav Amitav didn't want to give land away. Don't get me wrong. You know, he, no, and I don't think no one wants to give land away. You know, there, there, there are certain elements like when Ariel Sharon pulled out of Gaza, it, it was largely a point of like, this is a headache we don't need. You know, no one wants Gaza. There's hardly anyone living in Gaza. And it's just an absolute headache. You're sending soldiers there. You know, it's like sending soldiers into war zones all the time. For what? No, we've got to get out of there. And 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 there was a certain value that, you know, we, we're doing it for us, not for them. Same when we pulled out of South Lebanon. There's nothing for us there. We just want to get out. But um, in these other places, if there's a... We want peace. And so you only pull out if you think there's going to be peace. But uh, it's, it's easier said than done, unfortunately. Uh, anyone else? Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. I wish you all a pleasant evening. And please, God, we'll see you tomorrow. Shabbat shalom. Lailatov.